How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy, and today our guest is Tim Sorens. Tim is the co-founding director of the Parish Collective, which is a growing network and global movement of Christians reimagining what it means to be the church in, with, and for the neighborhood. His latest book is called Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You Are, and his first book, which he co-authors, The New Parish, How Neighborhood Churches Transform Mission, Discipleship, and Community, which hopefully I'll be able to talk about more, was one of the most important books as we were starting Imagine out here in Honolulu. And I really, I'm not, I'm not the patronizing type. I don't just say that. I really mean that, man. So even personally, I'm so grateful for that book. Tim has launched multiple sold out conferences, including the Inhabit Conference, which we've been to and presented at before. Again, thank you. If it, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here today. I'm realizing that right now. <laughs> New Parish Conference UK, Conspire Gathering, and, Na and the Neighborhood Economics Conference. And he's in Seattle now, and him and his wife are co-founding owners of, uh, how do you say that? Resistencia. Yeah, I'll probably, people out here probably struggle with Spanish as much as other people would if they try to say Hawaiian out here. <laughs> yeah. So he has a sweater now. I want to let him say that. I, I knew how to say it. I just, it's his thing. I wanted him to say it. <laughs> well, a neighborhood coffee shop as well as the South Park Idea Lab. Is that, is it still called that? Yeah, it is. Yep. The South Park Idea Lab. Tim, and he's based out of Seattle, which is where he is now. So, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me and with the listeners today. Such a gift, Kevin. Thanks for letting me be here. Yeah, man. Let's, uh, let's begin with a subtle glimpse into a little bit of your movement, because so much of your work is centered around the grounding reality of place. I actually don't know this. Where are you from originally, and how did you end up in Seattle? I grew up in a smallish town called Neenah, Wisconsin. So it's about um, 40 minutes south of Lambeau Field in Green Bay. And I uh, grew up in a kind of classically evangelical Christian home. But uh, for much of high school and college, I would say I was kind of, I don't know, maybe not a practicing Christian. It's not like if I had been fed this faith my whole life. I like took the spoon out and like chucked it. I just kind of took it out and wanted to look at it for what was probably about a decade. And um, went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, a Badger. But then when I was graduating college, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I was always interested in speaking and in rhetoric. That's actually what I studied, how words mm. create worlds. Wow. And uh, my dad had a 
friend who was like a professional speaker. He connected me. He ended up offering me this internship, which I then like fought and resisted. I'd ended up doing this internship for a year with a ministry called Life Promotions. And that person, his name is Bob Lenz. He then really encouraged me to uh, pursue a theological degree, which sent me to mm. Seattle about 17, 18 years ago now. Wow. So did you end up like, at, was it Seattle School of Psychology and Theology at the time? That was it. Yep. At the time, it was Mars Hill Grad School. Whole different era. Oh, gotcha. Oh, so it started as that and then became Seattle School. Yep. It actually started um, in a business, like suburban business park in Bothell, Washington, which is about 20 minutes north. When I did the kind of um, come check out the school weekend with my mom when I was, I don't know, 23 or so, we thought we had the wrong place. We're like, this can't be it because the website was gorgeous. They were talking about um, text, soul, and culture, and post-modernity. We're like, I think there's a Kinko's next door. This can't be right. <laughs> but it was actually an amazing experience. And while I was in school, I ended up moving properly to Seattle, which is where you've been. Mm, yeah, yeah. And actually, to stay on place for a sec, I mean, now you've been there, if you went there at 23-ish, so you've been there for a while. What about Seattle do you and your wife and your family, like, love? Like, that's, that's, you're there, that's your place, that's your home. What do you love about Seattle? Oh, there's so many things. I think overall what I love, love, love about Seattle, all, besides all the obvious things that people love of the mountains and the water and the light and the air and the food and culture is that the story for the most part of its history has been that people from all around the country and the world come here to remake themselves. Mm. And a lot of times that remaking then grows and scales all over the world. Mm, so whether that's initially people that um, came for gold or then airplanes or software or global health or now, you know, Amazon and cloud computing, Starbucks. I mean, those are kind of, historically corporate examples, but there's music and art, and I would argue even kind of religious traditions that mm. when they got gestated in the soil of Seattle, they found their footing and then they, they grew all over the world. Wow. So there's this energy here of uh, while you're here, we're going to protect and nurture your idea. You can do it. And then don't think small, keep going bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm, yeah it's so good and you can already tell from you know what tim's sharing the role of place the role of knowing the history of the area you live and how knowing and being grounded and seeing yourself as a part of a history contributes so much to where you are and where you're going man it's so good you're like i already focused on so much of your writing and your life is grounded in the central idea that place matters I want to give a quick side note to the listeners. I mentioned to Tim when, when we first started talking before I was recording that a lot of the people who come on this podcast, it's theological, it's theoretical, it's conceptual, which is all important. Tim and I are both lovers of probably reading a lot of those same people. And when I look at somebody like Tim and the work that he does, I'm like, Tim's life and work is the concrete translation of all of that into everyday love for our community. I remember 
early on in the life of Imagine, like a, a young college student looked at this whole bookshelf that I had. It was already in the house. It was a whole wall of a bookshelf, which was perfect because it's like such a hard thing to, when you have smaller places to figure out what to do. I have a closet right now that's like a bookshelf. <laughs> sad. I can't, I'm sad. I can't see them all. But he looked at it all. And I think in his young sort of like knowledge, you know, puffs up, but this builds up, you know, kind of a thing. He was like, what's the point of having all that? You know, he kind of looked at it all and it wasn't antagonistic. I think he was like, what's the point of reading this book about race and economics? What's the point of reading this other book? And without really thinking, I said, all of that helps me love people better where I am. If I have this further analytical lens, it helps me get into those cracks and have the vision to ask, what does love look like here? And I say that because I think so many of the authors and people that so many think that so many Christians love, Tim's work is, and all of that is for the sake of grounding this incarnationally into a loving, healing restorative, inspiring, creative presence for our neighbor. And that's what he does so well. You know, a lot of times it's the less sexy actual doing of the thing, but it's where all of that learning is supposed to point. So back, that's my little side note, back to the question. So off the top for people listening in, what do you mean when you talk about the importance of place and why has that resonated with you and become such a foundational part of your life and your work? first of all, Kevin, I so appreciate those kind words. For me, the reason that place and the idea of parish matter so much is because, in some ways, you've already answered it. It's because it is a dare to, to ourselves. It's a dare to the biggest stories that we live into. It's a dare to the things that we hold most dear. Um, it's a picture back of reality. And so even more than any kind of additional theoretical idea, I think that place is so powerful because when you're living in a particular place, whether it be a neighborhood or a village or whatever, and you try something, literally anything, it's going to react back. Like there's going to be an effect of your action. And then you can either learn from it and continue to kind of grow and move on and change and react and adapt and iterate or not but if you don't it's going to keep talking back right i mean our neighbors our places and and i would argue even the systems that um in many ways govern our entire our lives we want to be you know a force of change within them and that's really beautiful but they also change us so the, there's this really interesting dynamic that's always at play and that's why i think for so many, I agree with you. I love all the kind of theoretical and theological and political and economic work that's being done right now. I'm so grateful for it. But when you try and put it into practice, you learn things that you could obviously never learn outside of books as important as they are. And it's also a very different thing to see place or parish as kind of a, an ecosystem or kind of playground for communities to try and learn and adapt and as you so beautifully said like literally just try and figure out how to love one another mm. and love our neighbors that i think is one of the primary calls of the day how in the world do we do this and if we have the courage to try uh we can keep going and that's why i mean i i literally can't fathom 
how we're going to be able to recreate anything outside mm. of our places. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's so good. And specifically for place, then we talk about church in place. I want to start with this zoomed out view and sort of zoom in as we go along. I stole this from somebody who wrote this. I'm trusting their words, but they said, here's, they talk about you. They say his big vision. This is what they said, that the church will shift its focus from organizing and gathering in Sunday worship programs and events to becoming a global network of small teams working in their own neighborhoods to discern God's dream and help make it happen. One, is that accurate? And two, let's begin right there. If, if that is your big vision for people who may not be familiar with that, what is that transition from, you know, what you describe as the events and the programs of Sunday into these small teams working for change? Well, uh, of course, like, I'm super curious as to who told you that. I've got a guess, but <laughs> that is very accurate. And um, yeah, I would, I would absolutely stand by that. Um, I, I think more than ever, we can get into this perhaps a, a bit later, but I, I love the title of Church Needs Therapy podcast. I think that the church largely, like if the church kind of collectively or say even say a, a congregation kind of walked into a therapist's office i think if they were really honest they would say we would say i just don't know who i am anymore mm. and because of that i don't know what i'm supposed to do can you help me i, I mean i think that would be the fundamental question i mean i think it'd probably take a few sessions to get there <laughs> yeah. but i think that's a massive question that the church both capital c and then lots of smaller cases are asking mm. right now, what in the world is the point of it all? Mm. And um, ironically enough, to get to the point of it, we can't keep asking church questions. Mm. So that's kind of the critique potentially of some of the programs and stuff that we do. Not that it's bad. It's that it's not big enough. It's not going to get us to where we need to go. Mm. Um, it's kind of like, again, using the therapy analogy, like, Hey, can you help me be happy? Well, not if you keep asking that question, you know, <laughs> uh, no, I can't. Um, it doesn't work that way. You know, I can teach you to be grateful. Mm. I can teach you to be honest. I can teach you to interrogate some of your past trauma, but no, stop mm. it right now. I can't teach you to be happy. Um, I think that's the same with a lot of the, our contemporary anxiety around church growth, church survival, mm. fixing the church. I just think we're asking completely understandable questions. Mm, yeah, yeah. But the way that we go about answering them very rarely gets us to where we need to go. And that's because um, if you zoom out a little bit, it's just too small. Like um, start asking the God questions mm. and have the courage to see how that could play out in a real place. Well, now you're on a journey that could take a lifetime. Now you're up against incredible challenges that are going to require everything of you. But if it's just, mm. how do we save the church or how do we make the church better? Or how do we, you know, make the church more hip or cool or whatever? It's, uh, it's understandable, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think those questions get us to where we need to go. It's understandable so, if the goal is institutional self-preservation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's oh. those, there's so many times over the past decade or so when I can see and, and obviously you can 
critique some of the ways people are thinking without negating their faithfulness. That's one of the things I know. I'm like, I will critique people know I'll speak the truth, but like anybody who commits to love, anybody who commits to lead, I'm like, that's so hard. And I yeah. get it. You know, I know what that costs. Yep, absolutely. But I'm like, the questions are always for the future of the church can be so pragmatic of like, what do we do? How do we change some of like the external structure to make it work better? I'm like, there's a deeper question of who we are. Mm-hmm. and what we're doing that might require like going to a th- it's it's easier to get new outfits and get a haircut than it is to go to therapy and be like why is this not working because now there's yeah. deeper interrogation going on so sometimes i'm like the questions aren't bad they're just not going deep enough you know what i mean and i'm exactly. like it's, it just doesn't get us to where i know deep down you want to go and you want mm-hmm. to lead people there we're just there's some different questions there you know, even to flesh that out right, a little bit more, I think for people who are maybe not as familiar with some of the critiques of the way things have been done, the, the hopeful movements that I think um, communities and networks like the New Parish are leading people into, I'm going to read something from page 75 from the New Parish, and then I'm going to ask you a question so people can uh, kind of see this a little more. Fun. It's from Tim's book, The New Parish. He writes, it's Sunday morning. You're up and getting dressed while trying to get your kids ready. After stuffing a little breakfast into them, you pile into the car and make a 16-minute drive. The family knows this is how it goes. You're a little bit late, but frankly, that's just part of the routine. After finding a parking spot in the overflow lot, you make the trek to your church's building. As your family enters the side door, you are greeted by one of those ultra-friendly members of the hospitality team before separating into services targeted for each age group. The adults enter the big house. One child is off to join her middle school small group near the atrium, and the youngest runs off to the kids' program. Each family member settles into a presentation carefully curated just for them. When the service concludes, you meet up again as, your, as a family at your predetermined spot. The bench is near the information desk. Before heading back to your car, church is over until the next structured gathering. Sound familiar? And you skip in the next paragraph to there's nothing wrong with going to an event like this, but there is something wrong with thinking that this is what it means to be the church. Talk about that a little bit. There's some, there's something wrong with thinking this is what it means to be the church. Well, here's a metaphor that um, I sometimes play with um, what you just described, while it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, it's still pretty accurate, you know, for <laughs> Absolutely. Of people, uh, a lot of us. And um, I think that we have perhaps confused the huddle for the game. Mm. So it, any sport that has a huddle, you know, football in the States is maybe the most well-known, but you shouldn't confuse the huddle or perhaps even like the locker room with the game itself. And somehow throughout church history and for lots of different reasons, particularly in the last probably 50 years, we have begun to think that that thing, that hour and a half on a Sunday morning or maybe a Wednesday night or whenever you meet is the thing itself. Mm. Um, when that is meant to be where we remind ourselves of the story, we maybe huddle, literally huddle together um, in order to love God and love neighbors in ways that we couldn't on our own. And so um, 
I think we've just we've gotten a little bit backwards. I actually think it's pretty important. I actually think gathering is really important. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't even necessarily have anything wrong with. Um, I mean, of course, I have nothing wrong with. There's nothing wrong with you know children's services or breaking down age appropriate, you know, content or services. Of course not. Uh, but calling that church is a betrayal of the word, mm. and that's become totally standard. Um, I, um, I did read about this in everywhere you look, but it, it is kind of a fun story to tell. In fact, he's just in the other room, but he's now nine. But my son, Lucas, when he was about three years old, two or three years old, starting to talk a lot uh, because I care a lot about words and rhetoric. And of course I care a lot about this word church. In some ways it's like, the thing I've given my life to, uh, I made a pact with my wife and we said um, that we, as his little mind was developing and his vocabulary was growing, I didn't want him growing up to think that the word church was that thing that you just read. We just always talked mm. about the thing you go to. So uh, we said, what if um, as we raise him, we, we don't ever allow him to say basically like mommy, daddy, are we going to church? Like that's, mm, that's like saying, are we going to purple, you know, or something? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we say, you know, the church building or the church service or the liturgy or whatever, but the church is something altogether different. And uh, whether it's good parenting or obnoxious manipulation, he still gets that. Like mm. uh, he, he's got an understanding and actually that, that matters a lot to me. Not He's just like, because Dad, are a- we going to go to that once a week gathering while it's very important exactly. as the church, but is not the church. You're like, exactly. yes, <laughs> the church building <laughs> uh, or the service. Um, yeah. I'm actually pretty proud of that because um, you know, as I know you've got young kids, like it, it's a beautiful thing and sometimes a scary thing to think about what is going to be their conception and their lived experience of the church. Mm. Um, and I don't want our kids in some ways growing up the same way I did, which is just like, it's that thing, which for a lot of us gets to be too small or too uninteresting or it feeds into the same stuff we just talked about is, mm. well, what about the re- what about everything else? You know, <laughs> what about literally all the rest of life? Um, exactly. What do I do with that? Um, and so, I, I think I think this is a massive challenge for us. And, and also think that we're living in a particular time in history when the practical imagination of what the church is, mm. and maybe even more importantly, what the church is for, is mm. up for grabs. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, going back to the big vision, I, I do think that um, if you can't see and touch and experience at some level, a team of people, a community of people in your everyday life on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning or a Saturday night, there's something profoundly missing. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The thing about what a young kids conception of church now it has me thinking what it means for my daughter because our church met in a bar across the street from our, like we live in a tower I'm mm-hmm. on the 37th floor right now. 
So there's a bar literally directly across the street from our house. And we met there for like two and a half years. And I was a manager of the bar at the time. So now whenever we scooter bike around the neighborhood and when my daughter sees the bar, she's like, Hey, like that's where our church used to meet. Mm-hmm. So like her, her church bar is blended together. So I don't know what that means, but that's fun. She gets how she's already seeing how it's all a unified life. It's all yes. one thing. Yes. Uh, um, she's caught what? up into it, right? Yeah, she knows and, it's all and that's pretty beautiful. I feel like in our, our she knows like where we live is like, oh, our church used to meet here. Now we moved obviously before COVID. It was just like a block and a half up the street. It's like, well, this was church and that's church and people come to our house. I think there's that, like this is a whole and we live in the community. So I think that place and all of that kind of blending together and, you know, mommy and daddy's friends and relationships are friends, but they're a part of what we do here. So that is pretty cool actually now that I think about it. You know, I think one of the really you know, simple, like that good, you know, real good simplicity that we offer people as that we can offer people as teachers that you have in your new book is that, you know, you say something along the lines of we've been taught as the church, we've been taught to be helpful rather than curious. And while there's nothing wrong with being helpful, if our primary orientation is always to help as opposed to a a curiosity, then that can tend to get us in trouble. So when we think about place and being what is the church not on Sunday morning, but on a Tuesday afternoon, on a Thursday morning, and what it means to pay attention, like you love to say, which is so good, paying attention to what the spirit is doing in the neighborhood. What is the, why is that an important distinction for you, being helpful and being curious? What do they do? What do they don't do? Well, um, I should tell you that the person who told me that is um, an amazing man named Peter Block that some of the listeners may have read or heard of before. He's kind of a community development uh, guru in many, in many ways. And I think that particularly uh, people who are perhaps raised in the church, particularly lots and lots of Christians, uh, I, I'm going to go further and say particularly men and particularly white men mm. have been taught that we are helpful (laughs) like and there's there's something beautiful about that but like we have the agency to Mm. save or we have the agency to help Mm. and that's not untrue but if that becomes the primary posture that you live your life juxtaposed with curiosity you can see how you're being set up for all kinds of problems and so if we shift and say how do we kind of maintain a ruthless curiosity about people and of course ourselves too that sets up a whole different journey it's a whole different path Um, and I think from the curiosity yes we learn how we can contribute it's not that we aren't we shouldn't be helpful but um, there are all kinds of ways that without intending to we do all kinds of harm by trying to step in with our help Mm, we we have so many blind spots and then we set up so many systems that perpetuate harm oftentimes again not out of some malicious intent but as some of the titles have been written about which are excellent we can hurt through our helping or we can um find ourselves in kind of a toxic form of charity and so one way to break that cycle is to take a step back and kind of interrogate what's the first question am i am i curious should i ask another question Mm. or do i think i have the answer again it's not that there's not room for answers but 
um, a fundamental posture of curiosity, I think, is one of the things that we all need the most right now. Mm-hmm. And especially if you track it back, especially men, especially yeah. white men. Um, oh, that's so good. I just think it's so powerful. Yeah. And I think the reality of causing harm when we're trying to help. I mean, that's what an overbearing mother does. Everything they're saying is because they care. But as that care within is born and externalized through form, through whatever practices, you're like, mom, I get it, but that is no longer helping, you know? And, but perhaps if there was the curiosity, then they would know, you know, like the best way to love is to not say that same thing when I got a new promotion or whatever. Because like right. I always say preaching, no matter what, it always comes back to the mom or the dad. You know, we're still, <laughs> totally. we're still working through that. There, there was a... I remember there's like this surf break right near my house called K Wallos and you have to walk out on a jetty and like jump off basically into the water. And years ago, there's this like young local kid, like you have to kind of climb up a little wall almost to like get back up after And this little kid was coming up and there was like some older like Howley, which out here essentially means like white guy. And he was trying to help and he like grabbed the kid board and the kid's probably done this a million times. She doesn't need help you know, in that moment, but the guy like grabbed the board and like aggressively like put it on the ground, you know, it's made of glass obviously. And I'm like, it looked to the point where it probably cracked a little. And I was just like, the intention is there. I get it. You want to be helpful, but in the end you ended up causing harm because without the curiosity and knowing what's actually happening, you don't know how best to serve and to help, you know? So I think, Mm -hmm. Even here, the first thing we were doing in the neighborhood, we called it the Presence Project, which came out of like some of Fitch's like old Presence First Project stuff, mm-hmm. which was like, our, our whole thing was like, we always begin with our presence. And the first thing we did was, we're just going to be present to the people, the most marginalized people living on the streets in our community for, for about a year. And only after that, we will have, we will have a sense of how can we actually serve them. And then a year later, we get some partnerships with the shelter, like the art yep. thing, like we have like an art thing going on there. But before that, we wouldn't have known what these kids needed without that kind of listening. Yes. yes and also, yes, I, yes. Want, I, want to, I, want to, I want to add something to that. When I, I just finished the manuscript, actually a while ago for my first book, so I'm doing like book proposal stuff and all that, right? So Wait. it's exciting, fun times. And one of the chapters is called Feeling Shitty. Hmm. And it's essentially saying only people who are really free can allow themselves to feel shitty. So I essentially see like sometimes you might wake up on a Monday morning and for whatever the reason, especially as a pastor, you just feel shitty, you know, like you, it's just this sort of unidentifiable swirl. But if you interrogate it, there's probably some other things happening. Oftentimes we're frustrated because we thought this project would be further than where it was, right? Mm-hmm. We think we should, our name should be further than where it is or whatever. And what I, and the reason why I come back to the helping part and, you know, white males and agency and helping, it's not only can misinformed help end up hurting people, but what I write right there is I think sometimes when we feel shitty as a way of not feeling it, we achieve and perform our way out of it. 
So it's like, and when I'm feeling this, all of a sudden I have a great idea for the next project and how to fix that. And I'm like, even if that idea is good, the actual impulse of it was for you to do more to convince yourself you're actually not shitty and you are doing enough. And I'm like, how many projects, it's really crazy to think how many projects from pastors actually were born out of the insecure ego that were trying to prove to themselves that they're actually doing enough too. So I think the curiosity is not just, it gives us the vision to serve and love better, but it's also, is it, am I, I always have this suspicion. I'm like, I, I get concerned when it looks like churches sometimes do stuff just to do stuff. Like we're supposed <laughs> yeah. to be doing this on Thanksgiving. So let's put this much money into this thing. Cause if not, what do we, we're, I, it, we have to sit with this, you know, not do whatever those things are that come up when we're not doing so the curiosity I think opens up the potential of that within us too. And how we can be motivated just by like, it's for others, but it's actually, if you really get down to it, it was you and you, you, you felt helpless or you felt you needed to do something in order to be recognized. And I always kind of always have that lens up for myself as well, you know, as a leader, when you have those feelings. Totally. I, I'm so grateful for this story, what you're saying, Kevin, because, um, sometimes it can be easy to hear a word like curiosity and be like, Oh, that's cute. Oh yeah. Like kids, kids are curious or curious George, or as though it doesn't take enormous amounts of gritty courage Mm. to truly be curious. I mean, it's not a cute little thing. Uh, It's hard as hell sometimes. Mm. And, and yet, so for, for that reason, so, so important. I really appreciate that. Mm. Yeah, I've always, that's just something I recognize early on when I tell that story. I'm like, on that Monday morning, as I'm sitting with this like sort of uncomfortable emotion that causes some discomfort, I'm like, all of a sudden, unconsciously, this massive idea just unfolds. And I stop myself, I'm like, (laughs) what's happening right now? (laughs) You know, and that's the curiosity. I'm like, oh, that great idea that I thought was the future of Imagine, that was actually just my own insecure ego that didn't want to feel whatever it was that it was sitting in, in the moment, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, Very perceptive. Let me see right here. I've, I definitely have some more questions. This is so good, by the way, man. I'm so grateful that you're on. In, in paying attention, you know, you, that phrase, that idea, you know, paying attention to the spirit in your neighborhood, you talk about the importance of listening to the narrative of place and of your place. What does that mean? And why would, being more grounded and aware of the narrative, the story of where you are, help empower the church to live for the neighborhood and for the community there? Well, um, I think that one of the most, as, as you said, powerful things that we can do as faith communities is to begin to learn more and more and more, frankly, as much as we possibly can about just as you said, the story of our place. And I think the reason for that is kind of the classic historical answer would be that, you know, history is a precursor to the future, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it. I think that's absolutely true. Um, What gets really interesting is for faith communities, I think that when we begin to intertwine or intersect God's story of God making everything new 
and even our personal stories, mm. who we are and why we are the way we are, it's often kind of forgotten that the place itself has a story and a history, mm. both past and present and certainly will have one in the future. And so the more that we know about that particular place, it's, it's, it's like, kind of ancient history as, as it relates to kind of its ecological story, its political story, its economic story, the traumas that may mm. still literally, I kind of think are probably at some level kind of in the soil. Mm. If we don't know them, then it's a whole lot harder to find our place in that story as citizens, as inhabitants in that place. Mm. And I think it's even more difficult to begin to imagine um, if God wants to restore and renew everything, every person, every system, every plot of ground, the earth itself, then if we don't know what we're working with, if we think that it's just a clean slate, um, we're going to get fooled over and over and over again and make all kinds of mistakes that we didn't need to make. Um, I also think that while we're talking about stories and the stories of places, um, I don't think it's particularly neutral. I think that um, there are all kinds of forces undergirded by stories mm. that are competing. And, um, you know, one story might be, you know, that this is a neglected neighborhood and we use it for whatever we want. Mm. Not for the inhabitants here, but but I mean, this is this is why, you know, city dumps end up in poor neighborhoods or this is mm. why, um, land gets used horribly or this is why we don't invest in this place. And so here in my neighborhood, those are true in my neighborhood to some extent, but here's why we put this big highway right through the center of this neighborhood. Mm. Uh, these are really, really crucial, important realities. Um, and if we want to join in God's renewing, restoring, liberating work, then we, we need to know what we're dealing with, not just in the actual present, but how it got to be this mm. way. I think it's really critical. And um, most neighborhoods have their own story, not just to say immigration mm -hmm, or yeah. growth. Um, but there's all these mini stories that are so fascinating. There's so many amazing stories of resilience and courage and love and respect that if we can unearth a little bit, we can potentially be used to, to like recreate them and pay honor and respect to them. Mm. So, yeah, I think that I think beginning to understand our stories is really, really critical. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. I knew uh, the story, the narratives, finding ourselves within. I also think there's something humbling, you know, rightfully so as we're yep. seeking to be good neighbors, as we're seeking to contribute to the unfolding story of our, of, of our neighborhood, of our community within the larger flow of God's story. Cause when you know the story, you're like other people were here 75 years ago who cared, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I, you're not the first one to ever care about a place, you know? And that's, it both, you know, humbles you in terms of like, to me, that stuff always just those broader perspectives alleviate any of the pressure to do everything, but it also places you in a flow of like, but I'm a part of this. And that's also, that energizes me more without the burden of thinking I'm reinventing the community, the place or life when I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, yes. it's like when, when Howard says to join the church is to jump on a moving train, 
You know, that's always mm-hmm. you're like, yeah, it's, this has been going and it's going. And we have this amazing ability to reimagine what it's like right here. But also we're not, the whole thing isn't us. No. This is one small corner. And yet, but yet we are here and it's also empowering to do it. So it's like both. It re-energizes you without the unnecessary pressure that comes from trying to work it so hard as if it's all on you. You know, that's totally. why I think that history and story is so good. Yeah. Well, and also if we have the kind of courage and faith to believe that God is actually in some way at work, the spirit is at work out ahead of us, then that also gets, that has been true at some level and is true now. And if it's true now, then the, all of our dreams, all of the transformation that we'd seek to be a part of is received as gift because ultimately it's God's work and we get to be a part of it as opposed to like what you just said, like it's on us. We have to get a bigger, stronger technique and crank it out. Right. And if we don't, we failed. I mean, that's, yeah. it's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> that just sets yeah. up, you know, savior complex after savior complex. But frankly, then we're back, we're back in a toxic charity. Yeah. Yeah. And it steals, the person who's doing its joy and buoyancy yes. in life. And that I feel like that naturally over the years and still is today, something I care deeply about is I know so much of, you know, what goes into leading, starting churches, starting nonprofits, really caring. And I know how hard that is. And I know that was one of the most surprising things to me with like, I never was on staff at a church before. Imagine like I started a church was never worked for a church before, <laughs> but after a year or so I was like, Oh, this is not an easy thing to do and to maintain joy. Wow. That's really interesting. Cause I'm like, because of all these different things I could name, you know, two yeah. multidimensional relationships, this sort yep. of externalized pressure because people know what you're all that stuff. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I always care. I'm like, there's so many great leaders that are going to help people lead better. I'm not one of those people, you know, like organizationally, I'm not at all, but I'm like, what I care about is, is, is Tim Sorens who does things I can never do? Is this person who's organizing, this person who's leading this movement, which I can never fathom doing those things over and over. I'm like, I want them to have fun though. I want them to have joy. That's more what I get. That's what I, and like what you're saying, it, it does that pressure coming off and seeing ourselves as a part starts to take, like when you're creating out of that free place, it doesn't place weight on you. It takes weight off of you. And that's what I care yes. about. That's what I love. You know? Yes. Yeah. Amen to that. And of course, as, as you know, and I think you've experienced that's contagious. Mm. And when it's contagious, there's like, what is going on with these people? Mm, you know, yeah. not in some weird bait and switch kind of a way of now we just tell you about Jesus. Like what, what is the big story you're living? Well, what, where is this exactly joy come from? It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's the sickest thing about the older like activists, like the Berrigans and like John Deere. And like, even when you look at like the, like that, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu wrote that book together. You're like, here are people who have been living under death threat for 20, 30 years. They've been arrested 75 times. They're in jail at 80 and they're just, they think it's hilarious. You know, and they're just laughing and joking around. And I'm like that, what looks like a naive sense of joy to the 30 year old who's grinding it out is actually the greatest second half of life wisdom that the people who have been through it all, let all of the need to control outcomes go, but are still giving them like, that's, 
that's what it is. That that's the contagiousness you're talking about. You're like they're freaking. It's hel- they're in jail and it's hilarious. Like Desmond Tutu's been in a death threat and he's like when you see him, he's like a character. You know, he's just like hilarious. So when I see that, I'm like that's that narrow path that people have been through and have let it all go and are still doing it. I'm like, that's the ultimate joy. I just am so drawn to that. I think this is a bit off the cuff, but I think when you look at kind of heroes like that, and I think this is maybe something to be, there's some healthy ambition here. The most spiritually mature people that I've either come across or even just like read about, have probably at least two things very much in common. They're very joyful Mm. and they have an obvious love for their enemies. Mm, Interesting. And you put those two things together, you're, you're a badass. I mean, (laughs) you know what I mean? And uh, man, I want to be like that. Yeah. And I think they go together. Yeah, absolutely. That's so good. Um, because this podcast is the church needs therapy and sometimes in therapy we have to ask hard questions we have to you know we are asked questions that you know make the person in therapy uncomfortable because they're uncovering the things that are actually getting in the way mm-hmm. i want to tell you this story and then i want when we talk about you know a part of what we're saying is there's this movement from bigger box churches, disconnected from place, throwing events that are kind of not always grounded in the life of the neighborhood. And this sort of desire, this future, so much of the future of the church, which you guys are helping lead people into is the move towards rootedness, place, caring for our community, being a part, being in, of, with, and for the community. So I want to tell you this story because I want the listeners to hear this. And I just want to hear your response to it in light of all that. Great. I will leave out some names, you know, for the sake of people. So there was a pastor, let's say in the past five to seven years, who was doing a church that was very new parish place. You walk around the neighborhood with him. People know him. His family's there. He's in the place. And he's sort of doing that like we're slowly rooting ourselves here in the neighborhood. And at the same time, the neighborhood's, you know, growing. It's sort of becoming more and more of a hub for small businesses. A lot of the cultural elements you see in major metropolitan areas. So it's a growing and thus like gentrifying neighborhood too, right? It's exciting. It's confusing. People are being displaced. You have more and more people with money moving in, right? The whole kind of scene that is happening everywhere, right? And he's probably been there for, let's say, three to four years at that point. I'm sure his church had a small budget like we do. You know, they don't have these massive resources, but the people, the place, the commitment, it's all there. So they're meeting in some theater or something. He tells me at Easter one year, like right before he saw like the manager of the building, the theater he met in walking with a guy. And he's like, the guy just looked out of place. And he's like, I was immediately like, what is that guy doing here? And he gets kind of suspicious You fast forward the story, it was a big sort of name brand box church who was planning to start a campus or whatever in that neighborhood, and they wanted to use that building where he was in this theater. And it becomes this, they're offering a lot more money. You know, my friend's like, I can't pay that, you know, even though I've been here. And... 
my friend eventually, but the manager of the building, you know, he, the manager of the building in the theater is like, it's bottom line. If they're going to pay more, I'm going to let him in. Right. You know? And then my friend goes to the, the people in charge, you know, the leadership of the church, he goes to them. It's kind of, it becomes kind of ugly, but eventually they're like, well, if we can pay more, then we get this place. And there's a lot more to it than that, which makes it even like a little more painful and sad and tragic. You know, that would piss most people off if they heard it. So what happens is this church with no connection to the neighborhood, no awareness of the history of the neighborhood, sees from the outside, this is a growing quote unquote cool place. And they're going to come in, throw a big event once a week, have commuters come in from everywhere and drive in 20, 30 minutes because of the name brand and then leave. And so in the end, my friend was left with no place to meet and basically like got kicked out of that place by a place that by a, by a church that has a lot of money, a lot of resources, but no vision for the neighborhood, no plans to rue the neighborhood, but sees the neighborhood as like the ideal space to throw one of their next big things. Right. So he gets kicked out and he has to scramble, which created a lot of problems for them with everything we're talking about. How do you see that? What would you, what do you, what is your response to that in this like time that we're in? you know, and the changes that you see. Well, and it's way worse than that too, as you can probably imagine. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm imagining it's worse. (laughs) Um, a few thoughts. One is, um, the church coming from the outside, um, probably thought that they were, doing the right thing and kind of living into their vision because they had done it before and it had seemingly mm-hmm. worked for them kind of in quotes before. But this goes back to the thing that I was saying kind of at the beginning, which is if you don't have the courage to try something and then see how it filters back to you, you're blind to what you're actually doing. You're literally not living in reality. Mm. And that it seems like that was the case in this story. Mm. Another idea that's maybe a bit harsher is I'm not a, a um, historian or in, by any means an expert in the history of colonization. Mm. But generally, I think we could agree that the idea of colonization, you have, you have some people from somewhere come to somewhere else to the land and then take it because mm. they can. Mm. So I don't see how you can't read that story as colonizing Mm. in the name of Christ or in the name of the church, Mm. which I think for most of your viewers would be seen as tied to all sorts of evils that we're still suffering from and, and hopefully repenting from. And then a third idea would be simply this the one from the outside as it relates to their life in the neighborhood never had the courage to be the church in the first place. Mm. Whereas the friend that had been there a long time had, and the the great hope would be that regardless of all of the kind of trauma and headaches around the space to meet that their presence, their social capital in the neighborhood and from neighbors, whether they're part of the church or not would in time, this is a a desire I'm Mm. projecting would in some ways say, we want you here. 
You've been a gift to us. We know that it's important for you all to meet. We're going to scramble too. Uh, mm. it, it's a really interesting story that I know really happened. It's also, um, it repeats itself. Maybe not yeah, that absolutely. much acuity, but I actually wrote about this in Everywhere You Look. Um, do you know, you know Mark Skendret? He's written mm-hmm. some stuff. Barry, it's a good friend. He, he yeah, that, that's started. also a side note. You know, the, the only reason that my wife and I presented at Inhabit was because Mark Skandret dropped out last minute. We were the replacements and we were happy to do it. I was like, hey, if I can, if I'm, if I can replace Mark Skandret, then I'm happy with where I'm at. I'll step in. <laughs> that is pretty great, actually. I forgot that. Oh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take his spot. Sure. Totally. <laughs> Which was amazing, by the way. Two of you presented. I loved it. Um, he, he talks about this happening. I think this happens in most uh, cities of, you know, probably more than a million people, but certainly on the coasts. I would imagine this happens in Honolulu, maybe a little bit less, but um, every single year you have a new class of church planting teams mm. who come with um, oftentimes a handful of families and hundreds of thousands of dollars um, under the idea that they're going to start a new church, which is a beautiful dream. And it, like you've said so many times in this conversation, like that takes courage, like should be applauded. Mm-hmm. But um, because what they're trying to do essentially is start the new cool service to get mm-hmm. the, you know, the newly graduated um, college students from mm-hmm. the closest Christian university um, and whoever else is part of young life or whatever, um, they, they cannibalize each other. Mm. And what they don't realize is that there's a class coming in right behind them. No one tells them that. So every year, Mark would say, every year in San Francisco, uh, San Francisco's maybe the worst on this because it's seen as, you know, godless San Francisco. It's easy to yeah. raise money to like plant a church in San Francisco, particularly from the Midwest and the South. But then they do it and they give their whole lives to it and they up in their marriages and they take huge risks. And Absolutely. of the three, one of them makes it, which keeps the story going. Mm, totally. Like making it, they get 200 people in a room yeah. for a year, you know? Mm. And then there's another class right behind them. I mean, th- we have to stop this madness. Mm. Um, meanwhile, those other two or three or however many, like, ostensibly, quote, fail. Um, Oftentimes their marriage is on their, on the brink of destruction. Mm-hmm. They've um, eliminated, I mean, they've like been tossed all around. They're in a completely different cultural environment. They've never experienced before. They go back to, you know, Texas or Illinois or wherever and have really, really perplexing conversations with God and, and their own faith as to, was I even supposed to come at all? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a problem. That's part of the kind of, I think the, the passion around saying we need to start getting clearer and clearer about the huddle of the game or what the church is and what the church in some ways isn't mm-hmm. because otherwise this story just keeps perpetuating itself that this is the big thing and this is the thing we celebrate and it's harming more people than it's hurting. Meanwhile, our neighbors want nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yeah. And I, I remember they? like first probably like 10, five, 10 years ago, I remember seeing this big sort of video campaign of like Hillsong's going to San Francisco. And I saw, I started seeing all these writers are like, please no, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, I think people without ever thinking about some of the things you're talking about wouldn't get that. But when you see the actual concrete playing out, what it does to communities, the cannibalizing of other churches and those types of things, it's really, 
it's really, it can cause quite a bit of damage in ways, you know, most people wouldn't really consider. And when my friend told me that story, I'm like, this is just mirroring what gentrification looks like on a business and economic level. It's like the same thing. This box reproducible thing displaces these people who have been here. And I was like, Oh, like it was, it was just one of those things where you're like, it becomes where you're like, this is another thing which makes it a little harder to stay rooted in the tradition you love. Cause you're like, sometimes just the way it looks can be so weird. Um, you know, we have like maybe five minutes left. I think with, with all of that said, which I think painted such a good big vision of place, the role of the church there, how it all plays out. This is a question I want to end with for you. You know, when you spend so much creative energy naming and encouraging that move from sort of an isolated Sunday event once a week to becoming a church that is rooted in a place, committed to a place creatively long-term, what would you say to people about how, besides you know, your vision of what the church is, what would you say to people just about how good it is to do that? You know, it's like when you actually do that, you're like, this is what it's like though. This is how it feels. This is how good it is. And this is what you're missing out on when you're just not deeply connected with real people and place and like for the community. Yeah. Um, Oh, I love that because that is, you know, I love the idea of saying that we kind of begin with God's dreams um, in, with, and for our neighborhoods, but that includes us. I don't think that God wants us living fragmented, anxious, isolated lives. Um, I think it's like when we think about what it could mean to both be the church and truly follow Jesus, I mean, it's, it's just a better way to live when you are known and you know other people, right? It's, um, it's a better way to live to feel like you belong to something bigger than yourself. It's a better way to live to get to see the gifts and the assets and the contributions of your neighbors and celebrate them over a long time and be their cheerleader. It's a better way to live. It's a better way to live to have kids and grandkids grow up knowing that they're a part of this ragtag community that makes mistakes and fights and just like any other family, but is fundamentally oriented to this bigger story Mm. that has the potential to change everything. Mm. I mean, it's a better way to live to know that like you're a part of this long tradition that has been uh, loving enemies and pursuing joy and uh, resisting evil and empire for millennia. And we're, we get to do it here and now, not just in the abstract. Mm-hmm. And if we do this together, the potential that we have to be the connective tissue with all kinds of other hopeful movements like localizing economies and the move to community policing and Mm. the changing of hospital systems and the actual rebuilding of our neighborhoods like Mm. sidewalks and streets and buildings and transit. I mean, reimagining what democracy looks like right now. These are the big stories that we all get to live into. Mm. Uh, Obviously fighting um, and becoming anti-racist people, but not just by reading some books or hashtagging, but the long slog of figuring out how to love different people Mm. that are right next door or down the block. I mean, this is, 
honestly, I'm not in a particular place right now where I'm wrestling a lot with my faith, but even if I was, you'd have to make up something like the truly local church if you're going to have any hope for humanity. You have to have some kind of a team of people grounded in an actual place who are pursuing the common good and not just their own self-interest or we're all screwed. Mm. Yeah. With, and, with every, with, with every head bowed and every eye closed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, no, it's that's, those are the moments when you get to be a part of that. Like I just, you know, like leading, pastoring, doing what you do when you just get to see so many hopeful things. Like I remember at the end of Daniel Berrigan's life and they asked him, you know, what brings you hope? It wasn't, you know, reading this, he was like being a part of hopeful things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and I think at that point, my 24, five-year-old mind who was in the academy, like I didn't like that answer. Cause I'm like, no, it's the book. It's, it's clicking the next thing conceptually or whatever. But you know, when you go through things in life and life punches you in the face and it, it, the idealisms are all shaved off and you're left with, you know, who you are and where you're going. I'm like, yeah, you know, you have hope. You be a part of hopeful things, even when they feel small. Cause that hopeful moment, like that hopeful moment with the concrete, the concrete moment helps us know where we are in the cosmic map. It's always through the specific, you know, and there's just so many moments I'm sure you've had too, where you're like, I wish everybody could be here right now. I wish everybody totally. could see this connection, could sit in this room and feel the weight of how powerful this is, could see shed those tears with us, could watch them start this thing with us. You know, those are the things where like, I wish everybody knew this and could be a part of this. So, man, Tim, thank you so much. Hopefully, like I tell some of my guests, post-COVID, life, traveling, would love for you to make it out here one day and be with our church and our community, but also just be able to show you the place that, you know, we are a part of and that, you know, we love so much. My wife and I personally and our family, our church, you know, our neighborhood, just the island as a whole. So would really, really look forward to that one day. And again, man, like, I just want to say thank you for your work and the writing that comes out of your life. Cause it really has in ways people don't fully realize and imagine it still flows through and speaks into who we are and what we do today. So man, appreciate you. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm coming someday. I'm coming. Yeah. Yeah. We will, uh, we'll talk again soon, man. Thanks. Appreciate you. Talk soon.